If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Kieran Klaus Patel, who's Professor of European History at Ludwig Maximilians Universität München. His latest book, Project Europe, A History, reflects on the development of the European Union over the post-war decades, considering whether it really did bring peace to the continent and what impact it's had on economic growth. He discussed these questions and others with BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Kieran, to begin with, could you just remind our listeners of how what we now call the European Union came to be in the first place? That is actually one of the most difficult questions because it took so many steps to establish what we now know as the European Union. The first institution that was built was the European Coal and Sea Community that was set up in 1952. And there there were other communities added to this first community. Most importantly, the two organizations associated with the Treaties of Rome, the Common Market on the one hand and the European um, Atomic Community, both in 1957. And from there, it moved on and on with further treaties and changes. And that has ultimately led to the European Union as we know today. And was it always destined to be the predominant institution of European cooperation? Very much depending on whom you ask. I think there were some people in the institutions who from the very beginning were hoping that this was eventually lead to an institution that would be dominant and really the main forum 
of coordination in Western Europe and in Europe altogether. Now, if you look back at 1950, when the first idea was launched with the so-called Schuman Plan, a declaration by the French foreign minister, that was certainly the ambition that he and also the person who was standing behind the plan and was really um, the genius who thought it up, um, that was a man by the name of Jean Monnet, uh, had in mind. But again, this was a very contested idea in the beginning, and it took very long to eventually play such a role. And, and am I right to say there were quite a number of other, not necessarily competing, but certainly taking place at the same time, European organisations in the early post-war years? Absolutely. And again, we need to remember that nation states were just being reconstructed after the war. Again, the United Kingdom being one of the few cases of a country that had gone through the war without a major institutional crisis and destruction of political structures. So there is the nation states, there is the empires across Western European countries that continue to exist into the 1950s and 60s. Plus, there were also these other institutional forums. So you had, for instance, the so-called OEC, which is the predecessor of another still not very well-known organization, the OECD today. Um, there was the Council of Europe. Uh, there were several other institutions and many of them actually had the ultimate goal to set up a new framework for Western European politics. And if you look at all of them together, the interesting thing is that this institution, which then turned into today's European Union, was a latecomer and was particularly small in comparison to the others when it comes to the number of member states. So that, that's really interesting then. So why do you think it was then that, considering its comparative disadvantage, this body would go on to dominate and leave all the others in the shade? What I find interesting that so far we have quite little research on this very question, which I also find particularly important. And so far, the idea has always been to only say, well, this was the one alternative to nation standards policies. I tried to argue in my book that, again, there were specific reasons. And to some extent, um, the specific setup of then the Coal and Steel Community of 1952 was already itself the end of a learning process of the first five, six, seven post-war years. That if you wanted, as for instance, a UN sub-organization set up in the late 1940s, bring together both East and Western European countries, that wouldn't work anymore under the conditions of the Cold War. So this institution, the UNECE, continues to exist to this day, but played a rather marginal role. If you wanted, as another example, to do high politics, as, for instance, also have an organization in charge of human rights, you would probably quite quickly see that certain member states would not be able and willing to um, transpose a lot of powers to that European level. That is, for instance, what you see as the history of the Council of Europe. And hence, uh, you have this learning curve to go for a few member states, all in Western Europe, all continental European countries, and also for low politics, not for high politics, for rather mundane issues like um, a common market, like coal and steel, certainly important, but not foreign affairs, not security, not money. And that, I think, is part of the answer to that question. One of the arguments that's been put forward for the the purpose of the EU and for why it was founded is that it's preserved peace throughout Europe over the past 70, 75 years. But to what extent do you think that's actually true? 
again, very interesting for me to see as a historian working on these issues for quite some time that most people have been f- focusing on motives and ideas and negotiations and less on effects. And this is also what the book tries to do, to change that and really look at the effects. Now, my argument is quite simple. On the one hand, yes, there was always the motive of creating peace with these European institutions. But when it comes to effect, the story is much more complicated and the answer is less straightforward than you would have both amongst pro-European and anti-European people. So what I argue is that it came into late and came into existence too late to really fundamentally create peace in Western Europe post-45, but that it did in fact contribute to peace, but in other ways and later than we've thought. Um, To be brief on this again later, only in the 1960s and 70s and in different forms, not so much in peace in the sense of security and Cold War politics, but rather social peace, this dimension of trying to ease social tensions within and between member states where uh, policy instruments such as the regional policy of the European communities at the time or also the common agriculture policy actually contributed to, again, creating social peace. And so is your argument then partly that the European community actually comes in a lot later than than other things such as, I suppose, NATO, Marshall Plan, things like that, that had already established a framework for European peace? Very much so, exactly. And I think we need to see that wider framework of other institutions to also see what the European communities were not um, needing to do or not in charge of. So one could argue that, again, there was already a harsh, a brutal Cold War settlement that created a comparably stable situation in Western Europe. Um, there was a security solution with NATO, and hence the European communities could develop in something that almost looked like a cocoon of other, of bigger, of more important organizations to first to start with, and from there only incrementally developed to the institutional framework and also to the power that we actually know today. And actually, when a war did break out in the European landmass in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, the EU actually didn't seem able to react to that. I mean, do you think that suggests there's a fundamental flaw in the European Union's peacemaking abilities? There is this infamous quote from the Luxembourgish minister, foreign minister of the time, Jacques Pouls, who argued that now Europe's hour had finally come, that again, the European Union would actually be the organization in charge of sorting out um, the problems and the conflicts in ex Yugoslavia. And again, as we all know, that was not the case. It very much took American intervention. And my argument is that if you look at the history, the trajectory of European integration, hardcore security was for the longest time never a prime concern. So it doesn't really, if you take that as a starting point, as a surprise that a conflict of this kind was basically beyond the powers and the possibilities of the European Union. So there is a tension between ambitions and also sometimes rhetoric and capabilities, which continues to this day, and um, whereby you could also say, well, um, security and foreign affairs issues have only entered the radar of European policymaking comparably recently, and hence one should maybe be slightly more patient or maybe also expect less um, and also talk about less when it comes to the European Union capabilities to play an important role on those kind of conflicts. And I would argue that some of the problems uh, that we've seen in recent times, for instance, also in the context of the association agreement with Ukraine, were also an effect of the youth 
thinking that it had bigger powers and more capabilities to also impact highly conflictual security issues than it actually does have. But then on the other side, would you give the European Union credit for the fairly peaceful transition of Eastern European countries away from communism and away from the Warsaw Pact? I think it did play an important role there. And I would start that story even earlier, and maybe already in the 1970s, with the role that it played um, when Portugal, when Spain and Greece started to transition from dictatorships to democracies. And the accession of Greece in 81, of Portugal and Spain in 86, were also meant and seen as means to stabilize these young democracies. And again, to some extent, one could argue that it also stabilized the European communities at the time, because the idea of being a community of values was very much also substantiated by the interest of these new democracies to, to become part of the club, if you will. And on the other hand, the means again also that the communities could wield and help these countries. Again, the social peace dimension that I mentioned a second ago, I think contributed to creating some sort of stability. The same also goes, holds true for the former GDR, and that I think is the part of the Eastern enlargement that we often tend to forget, that on 3rd October 1990, we did not just witness German unification, but that was de facto also the first enlargement eastwards of the European communities at the time, because with German unification, the former GDR parts of Germany also became part of the European community. Um, and the same also certainly holds true for 2004 with the real, so to speak, Eastern enlargement. Um, I, again, I think that that has helped these countries transition also to capitalist form of um, organizing their economies. But some of the problems that we've also seen in recent times, so the lack of stability in democratic cultures uh, cannot be fully um, kind of blamed for to the European Union, but also have to do with a very specific spin and powers that the European Union have, where again, guaranteeing and securing values is certainly less um a deeply um, institutionalized dimension of European politics in comparison to extending um, economic policies and um, creating um, a market, for instance. Now, you've talked in your last answer a little bit about um, European communities' values. Do we have a sense of what those values are and how far they actually are shared among member states. Again, particularly in European, continental European countries, there is often big talk about the European Union of our times as a community of values, now presently under threat by countries as Poland or Hungary, for instance, and their governments. Um, my argument in the book, and I have a chapter on that issue, is that, yes, of course, from the very beginning, there was a shared dimension of values and norms that brought these countries together. They were, in fact, all democracies, some old and established, um, others very new and still comparably fragile, including West Germany, obviously. Uh, but that was a starting consensus that you wanted to do that. But the argument also is that both with regard to securing the democratic values and norms and also rule of law itself um, within the member states as a community, as well as um, upholding those kind of credentials vis-a-vis -vis third states, there was very little in the very beginning of this process. And it took a long period to, in both these dimensions, um, 
turn this into slightly more a community of values. Give you one example from the early 1960s at the time Spain, a dictatorship under Franco, was interested in creating closest ties to the European community, be it membership, be it association. Now, the French, the German government had little problems with that. And then it took long, convoluted discussions in the European Parliament, particularly, to remind people, hang on, we, we, we are a community of values, at least we want to be one. And hence, we can't have these contacts with Spain and really accept it as member too quickly. So it was a long, long road towards, again, creating also legal means um, that help to turn this community slightly more into that direction. And what it means to be a community of value also remains contested. Obviously, that is also true at the national level. Let's not forget about that. For instance, um, equal rights for women and also also for people of color and um, also, of course, sexual minorities and so on is a contested issue in many countries where the constitutional and political reality today looks very different than it did 30, 40, 50 years ago. So in that sense, values, norms are always subject to change. That also is true for the European Union of our times. But my argument is that they're less deeply rooted than we often often think, and the challenges to these values in the European Union today are less new than we tend to think. One of the criticisms you often hear about the EU is that it's quite disconnected from ordinary people. And it's just, you know, a lot of bureaucrats in Brussels who don't the impact on people's lives. Do you think that's fair? And has that always been the case? Again, that's one of the fantastic myths about the European Union. The interesting thing is that if you look at the institutions, they're comparably small. So if you compare, um, again, for instance, the European Commission to national administrations, the European Parliament to national parliaments, then if you consider the size of what they're in charge of, um, they're not particularly big institutions. What I find particularly interesting is the way they have fused to some extent with national levels of administration and policymaking. And one of the arguments in the book is that, again, this was a very fundamental transformation of statehood and of international governance that was comparably little discussed and that many people were not aware of at the time when it started, which is the 1970s and 80s, and when it came, came to play an ever more important role, and that is since the 1990s. So in that sense, there's always been what I would like to call a technocratic dimension of EU policymaking from the very beginning, even if already in that first organization that we mentioned, the Coal and Steel Community of 1952, there was the idea of a parliament, and that parliament was also instituted. And of course, we're talking about a political order which does not replicate national political orders, but where you have democratically elected leaders um, and politicians then also playing a role in these policies. So to simply talk about the European Union as undemocratic, I think is wrong. But it, of course, raises the interesting and difficult question of how we then explain and what we exactly mean with a democratic order and democratic um, legitimacy in such an order. And there, um, to simply apply a national model wouldn't really work. Also because, and for good reasons, the nation states continue to matter. And because also we always had national politicians who made sure that direct links to um, the citizens of the member states were not becoming stronger. 
So politicians like Charles de Gaulle in France in the 1960s, like Maggie Thatcher in the United Kingdom in the 1980s, were always criticizing the European Union as this bureaucratic juggernaut and a monster and super um, administration aloof from citizens. But they also made sure that more direct ties to the members, to the citizens, were not actually reached because that also then would have threatened national sovereignty. So in that sense, there is this ambivalence that has characterised the integration process from the very beginning. And that ambivalence, I suppose, extends to Britain perhaps more than, than any other country. Why do you think Britain has had this really uneasy relationship with the EU? Again, I think history is key to understand that. And there is this long, difficult process already starting in the 1950s when these first institutions were set up, where, again, there was a relative consensus in the United Kingdom that with the Commonwealth, with Britain's global commitments, this little European solution would not be particularly interesting. That starts to change already in the 1960s with the applications to join the European community in 1961 and again in the mid-1960s. But again, to give you a comparably short answer, to the question, which again invites a very long answer, I would argue that the very moment the United Kingdom then joins the European communities is particularly problematic. What do I mean with this? This is 1973, after more than a decade of discussions. And again, after a period in which membership was always discussed as a means to create more prosperity in the United Kingdom. And we need to remind ourselves that the first 30 post-war years were a period of unprecedented prosperity, more in continental Europe than in the United Kingdom. So Germany, also Italy and France, for instance, had higher GDP growth than the United Kingdom. And that was also partly associated with this process of European integration. Now, the idea was, and that was also how top politicians at the time justified the idea of joining, that once the United Kingdom would join um, this community, one would also profit from this boom. Now, the sad um, story is that, again, in 1973, for reasons completely unrelated to European integration, um, we had the end of that boom period. We had a period that started with mass employment, stagflation, and many other economic problems. And that was also then very much what people in the United Kingdom associated with the very moment of joining the uh, European community. My argument is that the EC was not really fully responsible for the economic problems that the UK was witnessing at the time. Um, but the promises that were made also by British politicians to people across the country were highly problematic for what then happened. And I would not say that there was a direct road from, again, entry in 73 to where we stand today, um, but that this certainly helps to explain the complex and also often um, conflictual relationship between the United Kingdom and the rest of the European Union. And, and in that answer, you pointed to the fact that there was very significant economic growth in a lot of these countries post-1945, how much do you think the European community was responsible for that growth? Um, great question. And again, one where I also found it interesting to see how little research we actually have on that. And what there is, I try to summarise and think about in, in the book. Um, and again, I think it is necessary to divide this into two periods. On the one hand, the first 20 years of European integration till around 1973, and then the second half of the Cold War. Now, for the first part, um, there was a substantial dimension of European integration 
economic growth, um, but also not too big. So if you have um, basically a GDP growth um, that is for some countries at five or four percent, um, then um, a factor due to European integration that is about, and this is what you have on average, 0.5 percent is, is nice, but it doesn't really change the game. And the interesting um, summary or kind of um, a claim that I have in the book is that while it was nice, but not, you know, fundamental for this first period, the level of contribution to economic growth in the second part of the World War stays about the same. And if you then consider that, again, overall growth came was much lower, that means that the relative importance of European integration was much bigger. Um, across countries, but also for specific countries. Hence, the effect of integration was actually quite positive. But if you compare this, say, in 1976 to the immense growth and prosperity period that was just like behind you, then people were only thinking about crisis and didn't really see um, the, the little level of growth that they had overall, nor the specific role the European community played in this. So is it fair to say that while the European community did certainly promote economic growth, it was only a small part of the the huge development that took place post-World War II? It was a, um, a comparably small part, but still it did generate growth. And again, um, some people would also argue that it didn't um, create any growth at all. So what I what I would argue is that it did, but less than we've thought. And what I would also say is that we need much more research on this. So I would argue that my research on this is one next step in the debate. Um, but I would also think, also for more recent periods, we need more robust research on this question. Again, it's a highly complex question because it also always invites counterfactuals. So against which scenario would you then compare the effects of European integration? And I wouldn't want to be the economist um, who argues, well, you know, I have the crystal clear 100% um, answer. But I find it striking that also in the member states, the debate about these specific effects has always been little and almost non-existent, though there's always been this claim that this is an economic growth machine. So in that sense, also, I see that as deficit of research and of, of, of some of our disciplines to look further into this very question and to bring the findings that we have also more into conversation with people across the member states and beyond to really see why they would want or not want to be part of this endeavour. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It has become from something very small and technical with only six member states into an entity that really impacts our lives and the fates of millions and hundreds of millions for better and worse, as I would say, We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, a lot of the period that we're talking about here was overshadowed by the Cold War and this massive superpower rivalry. How much did that shape the European community and how... How far did the organization seek to interact with America and the Soviet Union? I would argue that, again, you can't take the Cold War out of this equation. Um, there is this French intellectual, um, Grosser, who once quipped that um, uh, Joseph Stalin um, should actually deserve one of the major prices for pro-European engagement because he actually, by, again, being aggressive um, external power kept the various different and diverging um, interests of these countries together. So external pressure, to put it into one quick uh, way of putting it, um, was an important factor that also um, served as glue amongst the member states. Um, so that was one dimension. I will also argue that the other dimension mattered a lot, that particularly in the first two or three decades of European integration, the United States served as something like the benevolent hegemon of European integration by also very much um, taking care of what could be argued is the most important dimension of international politics, that is the security dimension, by providing through NATO and also other means, bilateral means and so on, the key security umbrella for this, again, in the beginning, very small, fragile community to develop and then to turn into something bigger. Um, so also there, but living in very different times to the times when this whole institutional um, arrangement was set up in the first place in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but I would argue that um, you, the integration process was never fully determined by the Cold War, but it was a very important contributing factor for how the communities unfolded into which direction they developed and how they also then moved on to develop post-Cold War into the 1990s and 2000s. Now, we're talking at the moment in the age of Brexit, which has dominated British politics and I'm sure is, is a big deal on the European stage as well. But I was interested to read in your book that there are some previous occasions of countries leaving the European community, which was Greenland and Algeria. Now, I expect probably our listeners don't know much about that. So could you tell us a little bit about those two cases? Happy to, of course. Again, it's interesting that Brexit is not completely unprecedented, even if, of course, I also need to underline that the two cases that we're discussing here were countries of very different kind in comparison to the United Kingdom. So Algeria, 1962, was entering or had entered, I should say, the European communities as part of France. And we need to remember that France was a colonial power, that Algeria, 
Guinea, from the French legal and political perspective, was not even a colony, but an integral part of France. And for that reason, it had become part of the European communities. And then with the War of Liberation, the bloody War of Liberations ending in 1962, the country also wanted to end the relations with the European community and did so officially. What I found interesting, and this is something that I only found in the archives that nobody, I think, had written about before, that the president of Algeria, independent Algeria, in late 1962, then wrote a letter to the president of the European Commission asking if one could simply continue to have a relationship as was so far, uh, mainly for economic reasons, because economically it was much more beneficial for Algeria to remain linked to the European community. The, the interesting story is that, if you will, you have a very soft exit, to, to use that term for a second, which then turns into a hard and harsh exit only a few years later when the protectionist dimensions of the agriculture policies at the European level had fully unfolded, which then meant that Algerian products, particularly Algerian wine, which was a major commodity, had no chances anymore on the EC market. Greenland is a very different case, but also with some similarities, because it had also, like Algeria, not entered as a sovereign nation state, but as part of the Danish kingdom and was um, um, entered, therefore, in 1973. And what you have is in the mid-1980s situation by which more and more people feel that particularly the common fisheries policies is a nuisance for um, fishers in Greenland. And hence, you have the country changing its status after a referendum, so some similarities to Brexit there, if you will, um, from being um, part of the community to being associated with the ironic developments that since then there has been a tendency to try to forge closer links back to the European Union while trying to decouple slightly more amongst the 50,000 inhabitants of the island from the Kingdom of Denmark. So if you want to summarize what one maybe can learn from history there, and again, keeping in mind all the differences to, again, the role and nature of the United Kingdom, still I would argue that what you see is that after negotiations is only before the next round of negotiations. So the idea of once and for all branding the whole dispute um, is probably quite unrealistic. Again, we might remember that that was also the promise of David Cameron when he called for the referendum in the first place. And everybody's aware of the last four years. So the referendum did not lead to a clear-cut result and um, a quick solution uh, of one kind or the other. And um, historians are always quite reluctant to talk about the future, but I, I think and I fear that also any decision that might be reached by October or the end of this year, 2020, will probably also not be the last step in discussions and conversations between the two parts. Now, I realise this is quite a simplistic question, but would you say that over the, the years of its history, the European community has been a success? Uh, a simple question, but one that is very difficult to answer. Um, I think there is several answers I'd like to give. If you want to look simply in the institutional sense, right? Um, again, did it become an ever more important player? Then the answer is clearly yes. Yes, it has become from something very small and technical with only six member states into an entity that really impacts our lives and the fates of millions and hundreds of millions for better and worse, as I would say. And that leads to the other question, the probably more difficult question, which also has a normative dimension on whether it's good or bad, basically, of what the European Union has brought. And there, I would argue, again, it very much depends on whom you ask, which period, which issue you look into. 
But I think the question is, again, one that leads me back to something I've said before. Let's consider the alternatives, right? What would be the alternative scenario that we want to compare a situation with? And honestly, I find it somewhat difficult to think of a situation that I personally, looking at various factors, would find better for what we have in European politics with all the problems um, at the global level, like the environment, geostrategical issues, and so on, but also the challenges within member states and across borders, where conflicts, again, also between, say, for instance, France and Germany, have also as an effect of European integration and the social dimension of policymaking, more than the security dimension, become less important over the decades. And that, I think, might well be threatened if there was no community or union of the kind that we have. So also there, I would argue that despite its problems, um, the balance sheet is still somewhat positive. That was Kieran Klaus Patel. Project Europe, A History is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again tomorrow for an episode on the early medieval saint, King Oswald. Hey.